Why, why are we so judgmental of them going through all the things that they're going through when, you know, we're doing it too? Welcome back to Speaking Queerly, a podcast hosted by Kaleidoscope Youth Center, an LGBTQIA plus youth center located in Columbus, Ohio. I'm Mallory. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the civic engagement and advocacy manager for Kaleidoscope Youth Center. And I'm Isaiah, and I use he and they pronouns, and I'm the communication and development manager here at KYC. We hope everyone's been doing well since our last episode dropped. I feel like, you know, the two weeks in between our episodes being posted, both so much happens and, you know, just time flies. So, um, you know, we really appreciate the response that we've had so far on the podcast. Um, we appreciate everyone who's tuning in and we hope to, you know, be providing more content every two weeks. So you can look forward to that. Um, if you've liked what you've heard so far, feel free to visit www.kycohio.org slash donate, and you can make a one-time donation or you can join KYC's unity circle and make a monthly contribution. And your contributions will help KYC continue to serve LGBTQIA plus youth um, through programming, community-based wellness, behavioral health supports, or through educational tools and trainings and this podcast. So during our last episode, we introduced you to Lisanne, who oversees our QPOC or Queer People of Color group, among other things here at KYC. Um, if you haven't listened to that episode, definitely check it out because we talk a lot about Black history, um, some Black and queer leaders, and you know just historical figures who everyone should know about that we don't necessarily learn enough about in schools. Um, so definitely check that out if you haven't heard that already. Absolutely. So today we wanted to continue to connect our listeners with our members of the KYC team who are great resources for youth and our community. So that's why today we're going to introduce you to Rhonda Cumberbatch. Rhonda, who uses she, her, and he, him pronouns, is the director of KYC's, one of the newest departments here, the community-based wellness team, which started in 2019. Uh, Rhonda grew up in the Caribbean island of Trinidad before moving to the United States at the age of 15. He earned an associate's degree in early childhood education and a BA with majors in Spanish and psychology from Anderson College, which is now Anderson University. Then he graduated with an MAE in early childhood education and an MA in counseling psychology from Ball State University. Rhonda later went on to obtain an LSW from the Ohio CSW. MFT board. Since then, she has worked as a counselor for youth living in the rural areas of Ohio, taught at a private Montessori school where her son attended, worked with more at-risk youth while teaching in an inner city setting, and counseled young people and families who had experienced significant trauma, including LGBTQ youth. Before working at KYC, Rhonda also spent a year and a half working as the Youth Services Advocate at Equitas Health's Buckeye Region Anti-Violence Organization, or BRAVO. There's so much more we have to say about how incredible Rhonda is. Um, and selfishly, I think Isaiah and I are just excited to get to have an hour or so to just sit here, talk to you, and get to know you more. Um, so welcome. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you. Good to be here. <laughs> well, Rhonda, you've spent a lot of time in KYC's drop-in center, so you know that every day when we check in with youth at the beginning, um, you know, we ask name, pronoun, and the add-on question. So today's add-on question, sticking with the Black History Month theme and just history in general, I want to know if there was a time period in history and also a location in history. So this could be anywhere in the world, anytime in history that you could go back to. Where would you time travel to and why? 
Well, interestingly enough, it's my answer is is very personal. Um, it's more about going back to my family's history and looking into. I don't don't know a lot about my grandparents. Didn't know a lot about my grandparents. Um, they were mostly all gone before I was um, born. But um, wanting to go back to see what their life was like. Um, my my maternal grandparents were in. Um, St. Kitts and Nevis in the Caribbean. My paternal grandparents were in Tobago and Barbados in the Caribbean. And so seeing a little bit about their lives and even going beyond and before them to to just understand um, a little bit more of where I came from. Yeah. That's, um, that's something I wish I had a chance to do. I love that. How about you, Isaiah? Where would you go back to and why? No, absolutely. I think Rhonda really nailed it. For me, it would be all about trying to figure out and trying to see what life was like for some of my elders and some of my family members, just trying to figure out kind of like to be able to fill in those gaps. Yeah. I love that. Mm -hmm. I think if I were to pick a time period and I've given this a lot of thought just because I mean, in history class growing up, you only get such a topical view of all these different time periods. But I think the one, and this is very broad, right? This is not like oh, a specific year, like 1962 or whatever. But I would like to go back to pre-colonization North America. And I'd like to see, just be a fly on the wall um, to see like native tribes and just like how they lived prior to white folks coming over from Europe and absolutely destroying everything. So there's so many different tribes and it's obviously not a specific year that I could go back to, but I just like to see that because a lot of the history we get taught in school is a very whitewashed version of that. So I'd like to see how it really was. Sure. Well, sticking with that theme of history and Rhonda, you absolutely segued into this beautifully. Um, I want to know a little bit more about your history. So we read over your bio and you, you touched on your um, experience a little bit and just your family's history living in the Caribbean. Um, but I want to know what was it like growing up in Trinidad and talk to us a little bit about like when you came to the U.S. and what that experience was like. Well, you know, um, I, I compare sometimes my Caribbean past with other people's Caribbean pasts. And there's there's some ser serious differences, I realize. Um, I grew up very sheltered. Both my parents were ministers in the church and kept us pretty sheltered from a lot of what was going on around us. So there's a lot of things that people would talk about that I would say, really, that was part of, that's part of what life was like. And, um, didn't really know a lot about that. Um, so putting that aside, however, um, the important things for us when we were growing up were, um, being in the church, of course, that was big for my parents and um, music. We did spend a lot of time um, going to uh, orchestra concerts and being a part of uh, a recorder. A lot of people might have learned to play a little recorder mm -hmm. in school. We played um, a whole slew of recorders in a whole orchestra of recorders. Wow. And it was um, everything from the, the, the little descant to the <laughs> bass. And um, my sister and I played the bass and treble and some other things. But um, so music and um, the church were a lot of what we did uh, as a family when I was growing up. Um, but then there's also me as a person 
Um, and so music was an interest for me, for sure. I, when I started as a teenager, started to do some separation from my family, um, music was my thing. Uh, everybody in my family would sit around um, in the living room watching TV, like on a Friday night. And I would go into my parents' bedroom with my guitar mm-hmm. and play. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of my thing. That was um the my parents worked at a, a Bible school and taught young people to become ministers. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the guys at the school would sit around and play guitar. And I hung around with them and learned just by the, you know, they would teach me some basics. And so from there I spent a lot of time just kind of you know, teaching myself even more and playing the guitar was a big thing for me. That was my way of kind of getting away from the things that I needed a break from. Yeah. That worked for me. What are some of the songs that you would play? Like what types of music would you play when you were just teaching yourself or, you know, when, once you got better, what are the things you'd gravitate toward? So at that time, when I first was learning, there was a lot of gospel um, music and a lot of, you know, playing and singing along kinds of things. And then um, I kind of got into some folk kind of style music. Um, so a lot of what I would play, I started to write some songs and play my own music as I got older. Um, because the, uh, the music I was writing wasn't necessarily fitting if you catch my drift for my family, it was more about being a lesbian than being, you know, that that, that didn't that didn't work i i would pay big money to hear those songs. Maybe we can drop in a, drop in a clip here. That's awesome. Well, you know, that brings up another good question that I have aside from the question of I need to hear these lyrics. <laughs> but, um, you know, so much of being a teenager and young adult is uh, learning more about yourself and exploring parts of your own identity. And that can be challenging enough without having to move to a no- new country or just, you know, it seems like there were some tensions between you and your family as you were just discovering your sexual identity and, um, yeah. you know, gender identity, things like that. So what do you think, um, you know, were some things that, you you know, helped you to explore this, these parts of yourself and what are you think are some things that hindered that? Yeah, definitely the, the hindrance, you know, the, the, the climate in Trinidad at that time, um, I didn't think anybody else in the whole country was what I've identified as LGBTQ. I didn't even necessarily know what the label would have been. I knew who I was and I knew how I felt. But I thought I was alone. I didn't expect that there was anybody else in the whole the whole island, you know, which, you know, of course, wasn't true. But that's how I saw it. And um, so for me, a lot of that was um, my just kind of dealing with it on my own, being aware of how I felt, being aware of all the the people I was in love with and what was different from all the, the people I hung out with. And it just for me was a. I kind of separated from peers um, because I didn't fit. And um, when we came to the United States, then um, I I had one year of high school here and a couple of things happened for me. One was, again, I still didn't find the people that I thought were like me. Um, But then the other piece of it for me was I realized that there's a definite segregation of white and black people, even in the lunchroom at school. Mm. And that was something I wasn't used to. Um, Trinidad is most of the people around me were, were black or Indian, but people of color. And um, so when I saw that separation, I realized where I needed to be, but it wasn't necessarily where I felt comfortable. 
Um, so it, it was it was definitely a big adjustment for me. Um, I spent a lot of years um, just kind of sitting watching my peers play. Uh, I can't think of uh, what the card game was, but I wasn't really watching them because I didn't feel comfortable. So I just was just sitting there um, because that's where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So it was it was really um, it was a difficult time for me. My my teenage years, I was pretty quiet, stayed to myself a lot, and um, I think a lot of that had to do with knowing that I felt like I was somebody that was completely different from everybody around me, and didn't know how to reconcile any of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Okay. Oh, absolutely. And I remember during our last our last episode, we talked about intersectionality and the importance of being able to honor all the pieces and parts of our identities. Would you be able to talk to us a little bit more about like how you were able to like recognize and kind of bring all of those pieces of yourself together? You know, that's a an ever unfolding piece. Um, I think. As a young person, it was very difficult for me um, to to figure out, you know, I, I I knew I was Black. I knew where, like I said, where I thought I was supposed to be. Um, uh, in, in the, and with my peers at school, um, when I started college, it was, uh, there, there was a primarily white school so there were a lot less of people that looked like me, but I was comfortable because I kind of grew up with my parents around a lot of missionaries and those kinds of things. So it it, it was it was not uh, it didn't feel un, it didn't feel unfamiliar. Um, but as I started to look more at my my identity in terms of who I loved um, and who I was attracted to, I. It did not work in that school because that was a Christian school. Mm-hmm. And so that was another piece that I kind of had to hold aside um, until I got into grad school and um, kind of got away from some of that um, need to to stay within a box, so to speak. Um, and at that time, then I started to, to look a little bit more at that part of myself, my, 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 a gender identity, the people I was uh, attracted to, the people I loved, and um, kind of moved through that, realizing that it, as I got into more into adulthood, um, I became more aware of that part of myself and maybe less aware of myself and my my race and my ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, because within my people, so to speak, at that time, what I, what it seemed like was those two things didn't mix. Mm-hmm. Like if you're, if you're black, you're not also queer and it, there wasn't room for that. So I focused more on the identity that was me as a lesbian at the time. I was pretty clear. That's where I was in, um, uh, and not so much on being black. So even in my my early relationships, I was involved with with people who were white, and um, that felt most comfortable. And mm-hmm. and that's where I um, not not just you know I think it's it's not it's not about an issue about being in a relationship with somebody who's white, but it's a, it was for me being in a relationships with people who were white because I wasn't really. Um, 
embracing all of who I was mm. as a person who was black and a person who was from the Caribbean, who was, you know, had definite differences, but kind of put those aside yeah. and just embraced my queerness. So it, it wasn't until, you know, probably the last several years, I think, for me to mm. to um, come into a place where I can acknowledge and and appreciate all those parts of myself. Wow. Uh, so, you know, we talk about young people and their struggles with trying to to figure those things out and i think to myself you know why why are we so judgmental of them going through all the things that they're going through when you know we're doing it too you know right. i'm doing it now at this age and so um definitely gives me a lot of um a lot more patience and understanding for um people changing through as they're processing and figuring out themselves right I, I think, yeah, that's a really great point. And I appreciate you sharing all of that. Like I said, I was just so excited to to get to talk to you more and, and learn more about this. Um, because, you know, a lot of times, especially politically, people expect, you know, trans youth to know definitively, like when they come out, like this is their gender identity. This is what they want to happen afterward. When they come out as queer, lesbian, gay, like whatever their identity is, right. there's the expectation that you have to have it all figured out. Yeah. And it's okay to not have everything figured out when you're 12, when you're 22, right. when you're, you know, 52, when you're right. 62. So I think, yeah, seeing it as like a constant learning process. Exactly. And what would you say are some of the things that, you know, kind of helped you embrace like your race, your ethnicity? Um, I, I think it really had to do with the people I was associating with. Um, I had, you know, friends that were um, clearer and more, more firm in an understanding of themselves. Mm -hmm. And, and I had young people in my life. I've always had young people in my life mm -hmm. and I love it that way. Um, and watching how they work through the, the world, my son included, watching how they go through the world and, and are comfortable enough to figure out those things and, do what they need to do and realizing how much of myself I had kept sort of like, no, 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 you need to be here and you need to figure it out now. And, and that's not really how the world works. And so having to, to see it in other people and see what they're doing and say, you know what, that that's okay. I can, it, it can be a process. And, um, that's a, that's a big, a big lesson for me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, yeah, intergenerational friendships and just, you know, whether it's in work, in workplace or family or just friendships, I think is so important because you can learn so much from people who are, you know, experiencing the world at different times. Absolutely. Hmm. So um, really hearing you talk has been really amazing. I'm thinking about hearing you talk about um, your, experience, your experiences in Trinidad and really all of the culture, all of the all of the opinions, all of the perspectives that are there. Mm -hmm. So like, how would you really express or communicate to somebody like the differences or kind of the journey of being in Trinidad and then coming to um, the Midwest and trying to uh -huh. navigate that identity and everything? It's a big change, a huge change. Um, you know, and it's, it, it, it's a, it's a big change because I didn't. When I first came to the country, I was in New York for the summer mm -hmm. because I have um, aunts and uncles that were there, 
Um, so we were in, we were in New York, and and the the, the switch was not as drastic mm. as it was coming to the Midwest, of course, as you can imagine. Um, so I think just then trying to navigate myself here with my family again, of course, very very um, religious based, very strict. My parents were my mother, especially was very strict. Mm. So um, trying to navigate that with um, having enough freedom as I started going to college mm-hmm. and um, taking care of what I needed to do in terms of um, schoolwork and those kinds of things and making friends and um, trying to balance all those pieces. It was it was tricky. Um, it was tricky because I was young still um, and I had my parents' support. Actually, they were they were here for a couple of years, and then they went back to Trinidad. Mm. My sister and I stayed for school. Um, so then, once they left, um, it was more about then being able to have a little bit more freedom and explore for myself. And I think that's when I was able to explore more of my um, my sexuality, my mm. my gender, those kinds of things at that point because I, I my my mom was pretty watchful <laughs> while she was here. So um, that gave me a little bit more freedom to kind of, you know, explore mm-hmm. who I was and how I felt and move through that. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And and I know you brought it up earlier when you're talking about the school cafeteria. And I think that's something that, right, like growing up in Trinidad, you probably wouldn't have had that experience where you're othered based on the color of your skin, at least not to the degree that it is here in the United States even still. And I'm wondering, like, you know, when you came to the U.S., it would have been right around the time of the Vietnam War. Um, The civil rights movement would have just been wrapping up, like, in the decade before um, the Black Power Revolution, Black Power Movement would have happened, happening at the same time, just about in Trinidad as well. How much of these major political and cultural revolutions were you aware of growing up? And like, especially coming to the United States, how much of that were you aware of? You know, I wasn't aware of a lot that was going on. I think, like I said, my, my parents kept us pretty sheltered, and a lot of my parents' connections were within um, a very white-based church. Mm. Um, so, um, so there was there was a lot that I didn't quite get. I think um, one of the things that I was aware of. Um, as I was, and I think I think about it more now. I was aware of it then, but I don't think it registered for me. Was that even in Trinidad, even though a majority of the population is people of color, there still were there still were prejudices mm-hmm. against people of darker skin, mm-hmm. you know. And so some of those things were still a, an issue even there, which is you know you would think well surely that's not going to be a big a big thing you know it's like you know all mostly all people of color, and yet you know it was very clear that the people on TV were going to be the lighter skinned blacks mm. and you know those kinds of things so those those pieces still were um, in in the back of my head an awareness of you know mm-hmm. we didn't talk about it a lot I do remember that when Roots came out, mm. um, my parents had us all sit and we watched the whole series as a family. And um, so that was, a, a, that was like, I think for the, the first time for me, like an acknowledgement of some of the struggles um, that mm. my parents were obviously aware of, hadn't really 
involved us in a whole lot, but then we got to have discussions after watching that whole, you know, that whole series. And um, that was some intense, some intensity there to understand. Um, it seems to me we were probably in the United States when we watched it. Um, I might be wrong about the timing on that, but um, but so as a teenager watching these stories and and seeing what life was like for ancestors mm. and, you know, trying to be aware of, you know, how that's affecting where we are now um, was was really very intense for me. It was, uh, you know, an understanding that I hadn't had before. Wow. One of the things that I'm thinking about that was a, um, I think a realization of some of what was going on in the in the country here that I don't remember dealing with that I didn't deal with when I was in Trinidad um, was blatant racism, um, and that came up when I was in I was in college and I went into a grocery store like uh, you know I often did. Um, and I went into, I was buying some things, putting them in my cart and, um, somebody from the, the store came to me and said, um, we need to have you come with us to, um, the back of the store. And I didn't know what was going on, but I, you know, I was, I was young at the time. Um, but I went back, um, and they said th they needed me to open my coat. I, you know. Uh, being from the Caribbean, I, it, the cold weather was cold to me, so I had a really thick, bulky coat. Um, so I opened my coat, and they said, oh, "Okay, it looks like you're fine." Somebody had told us that they saw you put a can of something in your coat that you were taking, and I—that was my first experience with this, you know, with being treated like I was less than because of the way that I looked. And I was very clear that that's what it was about at the time. And, um, but it was definitely something that I I hadn't experienced before. And so it, it had me shaken. It had me shaken for quite some time after that. Um, to this day, I am very careful when I walk into a store about what I'm doing with my hands, uh, my pockets or anything. It's, it's, it's affected me from, the time I, I was probably 18 or something then to now. And it's still something that I'm very, very cautious about mm -hmm. um, because I realize that people view you the way they view you. And it doesn't matter who you are as a person. Um, if they see you a certain way, that that's, that's how you're treated. And so I think a lot of that, you know, we talk about a lot of what was going on at the time um, in terms of the, the political climate and the social climate. And, you know, a lot of it was kind of out there to me. <laughs> it wasn't a part of my life. But when I came to in, to Indiana, to the, the, the Midwest, it was definitely that experience like, oh, wow, this is what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. You know, this is me experiencing it in a whole different way. Um, so it was a, it was definitely a wake up call for me yeah. at that point. Wow. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I totally answered your yeah, question. Yeah, no, you definitely did. I think, yeah, just talking about like the um, just culture shifts that you would have gone through, just adding on to the just myriad of things you must have been experiencing as you came here to then have that 
kind of history lesson on top of it right. too. I'm right. sure compounded all of the things that you were experiencing as you're figuring out yourself and your identity. Exactly. That's really interesting. Thank you. Sure. Well, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and I want sure. to talk about kind of what you're doing now. Um, you're, as we mentioned at the top, you're the director of KYC's community-based wellness team, um, which is one of the newest branches of our organization. So tell us a little bit more about your team and the resources that you all provide. Very good. Um, we have an awesome team. Um, I, the whole of KYC is an awesome team. I, you know, I want to shout out my own team. Um, um, in terms of what we're doing, um, we are working with young people ages 16 through 24, and we are um, providing the opportunity for them to have um, housing when, um, you know, so many of our young people at, at, at that age um, are in this kind of space where people expect that you know what you're doing because you're an adult now and thinking more of the 18 year olds on up. Um, you're an adult, but yet you're not really, nobody's really given you the skills for that part of life. You know, mm -hmm. and th there's an expectation that you have them, but you don't. And so it's just in addition to helping with housing, we're also doing wraparound case management because they, you know, they need help with figuring out how to get into school or get a job or get medical care or any of these things that, you know, they have to do to be able to be sustain, sustainable in life and um, may not have had um, families that offered them those kinds of um, skills that they, that they needed. So helping them with all those pieces um, is a big piece of what we do. So um, reaching out when people reach in, uh, reach out to us, um, through referral, then we are figuring out, um, how can we help them? Can they be helped in within our program? Do we need to refer them out? Um, and then we do have a couple of options for housing. We have supportive co-housing, which is a, a joint living space. Um, and then we have rapid rehousing where we have people who are living in individual spaces, but we are still working with them to help them become um, ready for being on their own eventually. Mm. Um, so uh, we also offer emergency housing, and that's one of the pieces that comes up a lot because, you know, people get into situations where a lot of times because of how they identify, mm. they're uh, they're some people are saying to you, you can't, you can't be here. And I think a lot about people of color, and that's a big piece, you know, like, you can you sure you can you want to be that sure but not here mm -hmm. you know and that's what a lot of people's experience is um and and to be able to find a place where you can just lay your head and feel safe and feel comfortable sometimes they're staying with friends and that you know that's only so long that you can do that and then um needing to be able to try to get spaces of your own sometimes there needs to be a little bit of transition. Mm -hmm. And so emergency housing is something that we are able to provide to sort of help people for a short period of time until they can get either into one of our other housing spaces or into a space of their own. Um, and then, like I said, our case managers are working with them to make sure that they're identifying goals for themselves and then helping them meet those goals. Um, so huge pieces for what our young people need. 100%. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in high school, we had a, like, I guess a finance class, mm -hmm. personal finance class. And we like 
brushed over the topics of like stocks and bonds. And I at 14 was like, yeah, okay. But like, when will I ever need to know that? And right. like, I wish that I had had somebody there to teach me, like, how do I apply for college? How do I apply for financial aid? Exactly. How do you buy a car? How do you buy a house? How do you sign a lease for an apartment? Exactly. All of these things. So the fact that not only are we like, you know, giving you youth a chance to like have a place to stay roof right. over their head, but then also preparing them to do that on their own too, I think exactly. is exactly so important. It's huge. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think um, about the fact that even with the Trevor Project, um, the 2021 National Survey on LGBTQ youth mental health mm-hmm. found that trans and non-binary youth experience higher rates of homelessness and housing instability, which means that about 38% of trans girls and women and 39% of transgender boys and men reported experiencing homelessness or housing instability mm-hmm. compared to about 23% of cisgender LGBTQ youth. Now, in addition, the study also found that Black, Latin, um, Native, and Indigenous and multiracial LGBTQIA youth face higher levels of housing instability compared to white LGBTQIA youth. Mm -hmm. So with all of that in mind, I want to kind of like ask you a question. Are you finding that in your work or kind of what is like hearing that? How does that feel to you? Absolutely. Um, You know, so many of our young people um, you know, as I just kind of alluded to just now, are 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 people of color, and so many of them are trans non-binary youth who are just displaced because they come out to their families and there's no space for them. You know, literally, <laughs> we can't have you here. Um, families um, are are just not sure what to do with, especially when when they get to that space. Uh, like they they may quote unquote, tolerate for a while, but you get to 18 and it's like, yeah, you, you, you can go on, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of the, the, the experience for a lot of these young people. So some of them either because their families have said, no, you can't be here or because they just don't feel like they can be themselves and be at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and are then maybe moving out on their own, either on the streets or they're staying with friends. And so some of those are the people that are reaching out to us and are need in need of a space to be. And so we are making sure that we can offer them a place to be where they can, you know, come in and just kind of mm-hmm. settle first, mm-hmm. you know, just settle. You don't even have to, to worry about anything. Don't worry about what you're doing. Um, don't worry about getting a job yet or anything. If you don't already have that, just be here. Mm. We're taking care of things. Just relax for a little bit. So they have a little bit of time to settle in. And then we start working on what are some of the goals that you have, you know, so you you can, you can probably imagine coming out of a place where you're just not even sure that you have a steady place to lay your head every night. And then to be able to know that, you know, these people say they got me, so I'm going to try this, you know? Um, And then moving from that to, being able to sustain yourself eventually is is a, a huge process. So yeah, a lot of our young people are, do fit those demographics and are, are the ones that uh, we're finding that are the most in need of that kind of support. Yeah. Would you say that your experiences growing up and coming to the U.S. as an immigrant and kind of having to find your home again here in the U.S., like Obviously, it's a it's a different experience, but the concept of like needing to find home again, like, do you think that that impacts the work that you do day to day? Absolutely. I've had conversations with, you know, some of our young people 
as they're trying to figure out and deal with the struggles that they're having with family, wanting family to accept them, mm -hmm. and yet realizing that, you know, this is not happening. And I understand it. I, I experienced it. I know what they're talking about. And so I can relate and we can have conversations where they can tell that I know what they're talking about, you know, and, you know, especially with our young people of color again, because, you know, one of the things that comes up so much in conversation is, you know, I, I, I realize that there are expectations within our, our system <laughs> um, that don't allow, not, not just in the family, but in the community that don't allow for me to be this person. Mm -hmm. And this is who I am. So how do I even fit? Um, and so to be able to to speak with those young people and and let them know that I get it, I understand, I know it's difficult, and and try to figure out ways that they can at least be okay with themselves. And of course, having a supportive community like ours here is huge. Yeah. 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 It's one of those things that I'm like, I hate that you have this thing to relate to, you yeah. know, because yep. in a perfect world, this problem wouldn't even exist. And you right. wouldn't like, I mean, in a perfect world, your position wouldn't have right. to exist, right? Because right. those supports would be there. Young people would be guaranteed to be accepted no matter where they are in the world, who they are, you know, where they are in life. But exactly. it's, it's really incredible that you're able to be there as like a, as a resource and just someone to look up to for young people. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Is is there a young person who has come through the CBW resources, like whether it's housing or other case management, um, like services that you've connected with that really stands out to you as somebody who has made an impact on you? You don't have to give, you know, d defining details, but. Right. Uh, yeah. With Without, you know, being too personal with, with it, several of our young people, you know, I think. One of the things that has been very exciting to me in this work um, is, again, identifying, especially with our people of color, our young people of color, because, you know, when I first was starting this job and somebody referred to me as an elder and I thought to me, no, that's, that's, I'm not, that's not me. Um, and, but I since then have settled into that that position, that role, um, because I realized that it is important for young people to see their see their elders as doing some of the same things that you know, having lived through some of the same things they're living through, and they're okay. Mm -hmm. You know, they've come out okay. So, you know, we have a couple of our young people who started in this program when this program started and have just recently graduated, it, you know, it, we, we kind of think of it as about a two-year program. It took a lot longer because of COVID. Things mm -hmm. kind of got held back. But we have, you know, one of our young people who is, two of our young people have just moved out of our housing into their own spaces. And wow, that is, it's amazing that they have been able to to come through all of the pieces that they have, you know, from not having a space of their own, not even having a space, to being with us long enough to feel the the strength of their 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 own selves, mm -hmm. and 
um, have enough resources to help them get to the place where they can now be in their own space. And, you know, um, we still stay connected for a little bit just to make sure that everything is good. But it's amazing to see them get to that place. And it's something that we definitely want to celebrate because, um, you know, we've we've seen the journey mm -hmm. and um, that's what we want to be able to see happen for all of our young people. Mm -hmm. uh, so it is really exciting to see these two people be able to say, yes, I'm, I'm moving on mm -hmm. to the next, the next step, you know, and I, um, and, and, and they show appreciation for what they have received from us in, in being able to do that. So that is, that is huge. Yeah. Yes, this is huge. I love that. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be needed, but also really nice to not be needed yes. anymore. You yes. Know? how you know you did it exactly a job well done. That's exactly um, so um hearing really all of this conversation I really want to say thank you for all of the work that you do and i think about how intense the work like really all of our cbw like the entire cbw team and really a lot of the folks providing our mental health services so as i'm thinking through kind of the work that you all do, I'm realizing it can be very heavy, and it and it does require a lot from you all. Yes. So I'm thinking about how do how do you show up in this space and find yourself able to come back every day? Mm. Yeah. Well, I I come back every day partly because I really love what I do. Mm. Um, I love the 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 team that I work with, and they're they're passion for working with our young people and making sure that they have the tools that they need um but i also i also you know need to recharge you know that's something that i um i learned a long time ago when i mm -hmm. i worked as a, a counselor in the or in my early years after graduation and after about six years of doing that completely burned out Mm -hmm. and um, know that I have to do something to make sure that I don't get to that place again, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, I, I work on most mornings. I don't get to it every morning, but I try to do a meditation every morning because that's mm -hmm. something that helps me get centered and feel like mm -hmm. I'm in the place that I need to, to be. I've, you know, years I've gotten away from it and get back to it. And, you know, so, but it's something I try to do consistently. Um, Music is definitely one of my main go-tos. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that's been part of my life from way back then. Um, and so it's either I, I'm playing music, I'm listening to music, um, and uh, that kind of sets my mood or helps my mood, mm -hmm. <laughs> one or the other, um, or both. And um, And then, you know, Learning to relax is something that I've started to do <laughs> over the last couple of years. Teach those your ways. Teach me. Because it's not something I've done well. Um, but um, just kind of, you know, coming and, and you know, finding a, a good TV show that I want to watch. Or um, a lot of times, well, most nights now I'm, I'm playing some kind of a card game on my phone. So it's mm -hmm. either solitaire, free cell, something like that. Um, I remember my dad used to do that. He would be on the computer playing free cell at late at night. Um, and I was like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? Um, but now I'm realizing that that's, it's like, it's a good, I don't know. It's a calming thing for me. And um, I, I actually love doing it. I got into Sims for a while and 
one of my godsons accidentally deleted it from my phone. So, so I'll get back to it at some point. Yeah. That, Great. It was that feeling for me. Um, but that kind of thing was just, you know, like, um, some of that kind of thing is, is good for me to be able to, uh, to get into, um, I found a, a uh, a Tai Chi thing on, on YouTube that I was loving there for a while. I've gotten away from that, but keep saying I need to get back to it, you know, um, because part of being an elder is, you know, you notice some creaking and some, <laughs> and some, some things that are happening to your body. And it's like, I need to be able to do those kinds of, um, yeah. movements and stretches that are important for my body. So I want to, I want to get back to that too, but yeah. Um, yeah, all these, all these things are ways that I kind of refuel myself so that I can come back to what I love every day. Mm -hmm. I love that. What, what music are you listening to right now? What would you say you've been gravitating toward recently? You know, my, my radio dial is mostly set to, um, R&B oldies. Mm -hmm. That is what I, um, I will turn the volume up. (laughs) <laughs> and in the car yeah <laughs> um and just crank it because they'll play stuff that i remember from way back and it just you know i'm driving and dancing and it just mm-hmm. is it's it's what i really love so that's that's my main um there are moments when i'm when i'm when i'm angry about something and i will turn on some rap music because i need that kind of mm-hmm. intensity there are moments when I just want to chill and I will either turn on some jazz or some or some classical music um, because I grew up with all of it. So I, I you know, like all those pieces. Um, sometimes I just like to go back to um, stuff from the 70s and 80s and just listen to just, you know, Billy Joel or something, mm-hmm. you know, like that. Um, but my most my the, the thing I will listen to the most is that R&B coldies. That's my, that. that's my stuff. I love my that. music. Very yeah. cool. Um, so one thing that Isaiah and I, we were just at a tabling event last week and a question we got asked a couple of times is we love the housing program. How can we help? Mm-hmm. What are ways, you know, people think about volunteering at KYC and they think hanging out at the drop-in center during programming, which is obviously needed and a great way for people to get involved. But with the housing program specifically, what are ways that people can give back to the program can help with that? Yes. You know, um, I know we recently put out, uh, um, our requests, uh, our executive director recently put out a request for something as simple as like pictures to hang on the walls mm. in our housing program. Mm. Um, I know we have a wish list on our website for some of the things that um, our young people might be needing in our houses um, or just needing for, you know, their own taking care of themselves as they're there. So definitely checking out the wish list and mm. seeing what's available, what what we're asking for and donating whatever you can would be, would be fantastic. Um, because uh, yeah, our young people are, um, are needing those things and um, it would help them um, just not have to worry about one more thing while they're trying to maneuver through yeah. everything else that they're doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Those are great ways. I love the idea of donating art too, because mm. you're right. You, it's one thing to have a roof over your head, but it's another thing to have that roof feel like a home too. Right. Mm. Right. And that's one of the pieces, you know, we, we partner with a, a young person in the community who is, um, has a couple of homes that we're using for our supportive co-housing. And that's something that he's talked about. That's, that's really important is mm. having, 
young people have not just a space, but a space that feels good to them mm-hmm. and feels comfortable. And, and I, that is, that's, that is huge. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. So, um, thank you very much, Rhonda. I feel like that's kind of like the perfect place to kind mm-hmm. of wrap things up. Um, if, if there are any young people or, you know, anybody who's listening to this and thinks, you know, the stories you're telling, the work you're doing is great and wants to connect with you more, how can people reach out to you? So absolutely. Call, um, well, I'd say Rhonda at KYCOhio.org is a, is a great place to, to jump in. Also, if you call the, um, the KYC line and, and connect with the, the community-based wellness extension, that brings you to an extension that I will check and um, I'll respond. So um, those are definitely ways that I will be happy to to hear from people and respond. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for making yourself available, you know, Absolutely. both in the work you're doing and and by being here on this podcast. I know we've appreciated this, this time and I'm sure so thank many you. others have too. So thank you for making yourself available for this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for listening to this episode of Speaking Queerly. If you have any suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear us talk about, or if you have any questions you'd like us to address on a future episode, send an email to mallory at kycohio.org. And as always, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share this episode with a friend so they can be part of the conversation too. And you can also follow us on all social media platforms at KYC Ohio, and you can donate to support the podcast at www.kycohio.org slash donate. Thank you again for, for listening. <laughs>